giving us a good day. Even if it was stormy outside, he's still good. Thank you so much for being here. I hope you have your Bible. And I want you to turn to the book of Acts, chapter 1. And after you locate that, turn to the gospel of Luke, chapter 24. Those two places this morning, Acts, chapter 1, and Luke, chapter 24. For many years, over 20 years, I coached Little League Baseball, and I enjoyed those years very much. I I did that to spend time with my boys and then also to help those young men. Uh, Many of those fellows were were fatherless. I remember as the years increased, my, my final years there, most of those boys, I think the last year I had uh, 11 or 12, I forget right now, I'd have to look it up, but only, only two guys on the team had fathers, and uh, as, as each year increased from the time that I started, that became the case, so I had a real burden for those, those fellas and their families, loved them and tried to invest in them. It's fun to go around town and, and see them uh, know who you are, and they've grown up. I was in Pizza Hut a while back, and uh, Jake was with me and saw one of those guys. He's a great big guy. He's bigger than I am now. And another reason that uh, I got involved with that, as well as my family, all through these years, was to be a witness for the Lord Jesus. So... When I coached them, I, I was very intentional. I, I taught the boys about baseball. And so when we had practice, they were, they were very organized. Uh, things were scripted. I had um, a schedule laid out with specific drills and how, much minute, how many minutes we were going to uh, work on that. We had different stations, and I had men helping with me, and I, I would... Ask them sometimes if they didn't know much, I would say, this is what I want you to do. And we would rotate those out, and we would have a lot of repetitions. And we didn't scrimmage for until about maybe 10 days out. And sometimes the boys would get all anxious, when are we going to scrimmage? And I didn't say this, but I wanted to. Well, when you learn how to play, that's what going to scrimmage. You know, you and scrimmage, for those of you that don't play sports, that means to play a little inter-squad game. But you're not ready to do that. You guys just want to get together and play backyard ball. You need a lot of repetitions, a lot of repetitions, doing the same thing over and over again. As one man said, practice doesn't make perfect, it makes permanent. Uh, You need to to practice properly and correctly. And so in those practices, we were making corrections and alterations to, to help those guys know what to do. I was kind to them, but I also had some objectives. So there was no excuse for the guys not to know what they were supposed to do or how to do it. And I even broke down the drills and the basics, whether it was throwing the baseball or batting or whatever it was, into very simple steps. And I gave those steps nicknames so that, that were age-appropriate so that during the game that I could call out to them, and give that particular nickname, and they knew exactly what I was talking about so that they could correct that or, or they could do whatever I was talking to them about. So it was important to me, not that we will win. Winning is fun, but I wanted those guys, if they wanted to play baseball later, 
to, to be able to, to go up and say, hey, uh, I, I'm fundamentally sound. Or at least when we perform, and, and hopefully to know what excellence is about. So there was just no excuse. Now, you know, people have different skill levels. I knew that. But there was no excuse for anybody that was on that team or any team not to know what they were supposed to do and how to do it. There, there was just no excuse. I mean, we drilled and we drilled and we drilled. But the most frustrating thing for me as a coach was, and Jake is here, he's going to see some individuals in his mind, and I can't look at him because I will smile along with him, would be for certain players that weren't bad kids, but in spite of all of those hours, and I'm talking about because a couple of months out, about two and a half months out, we're practicing before we we play a game. And we drill and we drill and we drill and we drill. Hours and hours and hours. And then you get into the game time and then they do what they want to do. Now whether it's a bad habit or it's, it's just, uh, I don't think it was a rebellion. But then I would call out the nickname. Maybe they're up at bat and they're not doing something correctly. And I also learned you don't give them two things at once. You can only correct one thing at a time while they're doing that at that age. And they wouldn't do it. They'd want to do it their way. And it's not going to work. Now, if your way works better, we're going to go with your way. But your way is not working. So let's, let's do it this way. It's the better way. And it was so frustrating because they were not only going to reach, not going to reach their potential, but they were hurting the team. Because usually they're up there for a walk if they're batting. They don't have the confidence or whatever. But at least do this correctly. And so you can, you can possibly get a hit and, and, and feel good about yourself. And, and, and just listen to me. I'm for you. I'm in your corner. But they, they wouldn't do that. They knew what to do, but they wouldn't do it. Now, that same type thing happens in churches and in the lives of God's people every day, many times a day. But the stakes are higher. The consequences are more serious. When we equate knowledge with obedience, it's a very serious matter. We think, well, I know what to do, so I'm good. But that's not true. We've been in a a series of messages on, on evangelism and how to to reignite the fires of evangelism in our hearts. And once we do that, that will spread in the church. How do you do that? I think everybody here, when we look in the Word of God here, you're you're going to kind of know where we're going. And those of you that have not been saved long, uh, these may be some new truths to you, but I'm not going to tread over new territory. Most of you are going to know the things that I'm going to say. Some of you may even, as we approach, say, well, I, I know what he's going to say. But you know what you're supposed to do, but you don't do it. And God the Father has has so much mercy for us. And I don't know if he ever gets frustrated. I know as I read in the Old Testament and how that even in the New Testament, how we can we can grieve the Holy Spirit and we can vex the Holy Spirit, we can quench the Holy Spirit. And and how that the Lord Jesus, the way that people behave toward him, what it did to him. 
and the Father. So I don't want to use the word that we frustrate God, but I'm going to use that word because I don't know what word to ascribe to it. But I wonder, because we're made in the image of God, I wonder if, if we ever do something similar like that to God, where He has just told us what to do. We've heard Bible preaching hours and hours and hours and hours over it. We'd have repetitions over it, and we know what to do, but we don't do it. And we hear it again and again and again. And then we get in our cars, and we go to work on Monday, and we do we go back to the way we were living our lives. And the Heavenly Father says, don't you remember what you just heard? Did you not take that serious from my word? What the pastor said, he, he was serious because he's my representative and he gave, he gave the word of God, my words, and, and it was serious. I'm serious about this. And you're not going to reach your potential. You're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And it's not just bad for you, it's bad for your church. It hinders your church. So knowing what the mission of the church is, is not the same as accomplishing the mission. It's one thing to know the mission statement. It's another thing to be involved in the mission statement. So how do you correct this? Well, first of all, you clarify the purpose. You know what you're doing. You've got to be crystal clear on what the purpose is that we're bringing people to Christ. And then we help them after they're saved to become followers of Christ. And then we bring them to the point where they're able to do that for other people. They're reproducers. And there's a, there's a generation after them so that even after we're dead, there are other people that we have trained and they have trained and so forth. The, the person that won me to Christ, someone helped him. And another helped the person that helped him. And so it goes. And we're all just part of a chain. So everything that you do, whatever you do in this church, contributes to the objective, which is a mission, which is reaching people and helping them become disciples that produce disciples. If you, if you set up chairs, you're part of the mission. Whatever you do, and you're, and you're to be involved in disciple-making, but, but sometimes we do what you may con- consider ancillary work, and you say, well, that's, that's just not important. Oh, yes, it is, because if you didn't do that, we would not be effective and, and efficient in what we do. And that's when a lot of the, the disunity comes in a church, because people, business people call it silos, they have silos. Well, this is, this is my ministry. Oh, no, this is, this is flatlined. We're all doing the same thing. We're all contributing to the same message, or not contributing to the message, contributing to the same mission, and we're under the same mandate and under the same message. That's what we're about. So you've got to clarify the purpose. And I hope you understand that, that you're a part of that purpose. God has called you to that. And then for the last couple of weeks, we talked about restoring the motivation. Because, again, you can know, you can know the, the purpose and not do it. You've got to be motivated. And the secret to motivation is a person. It's not hype. It's not listening to a preacher every week gets you fired up. It's a person. 
The Bible says in 1 John 4 and verse 19, we love Him because He first loved us. And I want to do something for Christ because He loves me. It's, it's for the sake of Jesus. It's not because we want to have big church. It's not because of guilt. It's not for whatever reason. It's not because of those things. It's because of, of Jesus. I don't have to do these things. I get to do these things. I'm proud of my Savior. I love Him. This is a privilege. Not just to come to church, not just to serve Him, but to represent Him. I think I I gave an illustration last week about my parents. I'm not ashamed of my parents. I would not hide their name. Brother Tim alluded to it a while ago about lifting up the name of Jesus. Why, Why would I be ashamed of Jesus? After all He's done for me, He died for me. He was wounded for my transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Why would I do that? Of course not. But we are. We have to restore that motivation so we'll be about the business. And here are the practice, and this is what I want to talk to you about today. I'm just going to give you one main thought, and then God willing, I'm going to help you with some other things. Be extremely practical. Then you need to apply the methods And this deals with the how. This is basically strategy. How how do you do this? Okay, motivation gets me going in the what. But, okay, I'm going now. What am I supposed to do? Because knowledge without application doesn't make any difference. If I know what to do, but I'm not doing it, I'm not going to make a difference. So what am I supposed to do? So this will help you, I believe. There's a scripture in the book of James. I think it's the, the theme of the book of James. It's in James chapter 1 and verse 22. And here's what it says in James chapter 1 and verse 22. But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. That's a real simple verse. You can memorize that verse. Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. So the purpose of hearing the Word of God is to learn the Word of God so that you can apply the Word of God. You're not just here to learn it. Yes, you are here to learn it. You read the Bible so you can learn it. But I'm not learning it so I can get a fat head. I'm learning it so I can apply it. In fact, if you just learn the Bible for intelligence sake just so you can get a bunch of bible facts you will not learn the purpose of the bible and i don't have time to go down this trail real heavy but you're not going to learn the bible because you learn the bible by obedience and here's what our tendency is is again we equate knowing with doing we think well i know that and we walk away and we think well we've done that for example it's important to read the bible every day that's so important And again, if you've been a Christian for any matter of time, especially if you've attended this church, you say, yeah, I know that. Well, that's true. Amen. But do we do that? Do you do that? Do you consistently read the Bible? You see, you really only believe what motivates you. And you know the truth, but do you do the truth? And every person in here has a difficult time with that. And that's why, listen to this. Here's what the verse says. Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. 
Now that last line is important, deceiving yourself. It's one thing if you deceive me because I know that you have deceived me. And either I won't hang around with you or I won't believe what you say the next time. But when I am self-deceived, well, I'm in trouble. Because I'm going to make a lot of mistakes. Because what I, what I think that I'm doing is right, but I'm self-deceived. And what am I self-deceived about? Because I'm not a doer of the word. I have equated knowing with doing. And let me quote to you again. Be you doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. I want to ask you a question. Are you a hearer only? Or do you do the word of God? Let me give you something practical that will help you. Every time you have devotions, your time alone with the Lord, whatever you call it. Every time you have a life group. Every time you, you, you attend a, a church service where there's preaching. You need to be looking for something and listening to the Holy Spirit of God for something that God wants you not just to know, but an application of that. How do you want me to respond to that? And sometimes it just may, it may be a repentance in the matter of the way that you're thinking about something. It may not be something you do with your hands. But there, there's a response to that. Because if not, you're just a hearer only and you're self-deceived. Are, are you getting this? This is serious stuff. Churches are filled with hearers only. Oh, yeah, I, be, I believe the Great Commission is Im, important. I, I believe that's important. That's the last thing Jesus said as he gave us the Great Commission to go out and reach people. That, that's important. I believe that. But do you do that? Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving your own selves because we're equating the knowing with the doing. That's why new converts are so effective. They don't know all of the Bible. They don't know hardly any of the Bible at all. But they just, what little tiny bit they know, they, they just get a scrap of it and they begin to, they begin to obey it. But all of a sudden, they become educated and they begin to know it and they fall into this trap of becoming a hearer only. And, and here's, here's the trap. Part of the self-deception is, is you think you're spiritually mature. Well, I'm, I'm spiritually mature because I went to Bible college and I know the Bible. I'm spiritually mature because I've been saved a long time and I, I know a lot of the Bible. You know, age does not constitute spiritual maturity. Not at all. It's application. Neil Moody said this, and I've given it to you before, but it's such a simple but profound statement. Moody said the Bible wasn't written for our information, but for our transformation. Well, that's true. The key to life change is not information, it's application. And when you begin to do something about what God has given to you, your life begins to change. Now, if you're taking notes, I said what we're going to talk about today is to apply the methods, and it's plural. I didn't say the method, and we're talking about reaching people for Christ, how to reach people for Christ. Because there's more than one way to reach people for Jesus, because people are different. The people you're trying to reach are different, and you're different. You have a back, different background, a different context. You have a different educational level. You have a different story. 
different experiences, you're different. I will reach people you will, you will never reach. You're going to reach people that I will never reach. Don't you be discouraged by this. Don't ever say, well, God can't use me. Yes, he can. I, I think it was Billy Sunday, I'm not sure. But he, he used to say, he said, God can, can hit a mighty good lick with a mighty crooked stick. You don't have to have everything all worked out. You don't have to look at someone and say, well, I'm not as polished as they are. I don't have the personality. I can't reach people. Oh, yes, you can. There are different methods. And I'm just going to give you maybe three or four. I'm just going to mention one today because the first one, I think, is the most important one. Now, if the mission, at the core of the mission that what we have is making disciples... The entry point of making disciples is bringing people to Jesus. Now, when we talk about discipleship, what we think about is is sitting down with someone and sometimes with a notebook or, you know, taking them through a class. And there's a place for that, but discipleship, the entry point is evangelism. Something can't grow until it has life. And a person can't spiritually grow until they're born again. And you're not a good discipler if you're not winning people to Christ. In fact, sometimes I hear people, well, I, I don't win people. I just grow them. Well, you're, you're, not, you're not a disciple of Jesus. See? And then I hear people say, well, no, I, I just win them. And then other people, they clean them. I, I, I catch the fish and they clean them. Oh, no, 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 no. no God has called you to... To help to train them too. This is, this is a turnkey operation. We're, we're to be involved in the whole thing. That's what the Bible teaches very, very clearly. So you must learn the gospel. You must learn how, how to effectively present the gospel. And, and, and this will encourage you. Because some of you maybe have been guilted into this and that's why you don't do this because you think it takes a certain kind of person but now listen the bible calls you to be a witness you get this listen he's called you and me to be witnesses now when you witness sometimes you will win souls and sometimes you won't now for many years we we talked about soul winners like it, it was all or nothing. If you didn't get the soul one, then you didn't do anything. And that's not true. I'm going to ask you a question. Did Jesus win everybody that he talked to about the gospel? No. No. He wasn't a failure. Now, is there soul winning in that sense? Yes, there is. But you will not be a soul winner all the time. But you can be a witness every time. And that's what God has called you and me to be, to be his witnesses. I like what Warren Wiersbe said one time. He said, God did not call you to be a prosecuting attorney. He called you to be his witness. He didn't call you to get in someone's face. To be rude to them, he called you to be Christ's witness. You can do that. You must do that. It's not enough to know what to do. You must do this. I had you look at Acts chapter 1. Would you look there? Look at this with me, please. Acts chapter 1. Look at verse 8. You might want to underline some things here. 
Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Jesus said, these are his last words. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses. See that? And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria. And under the uttermost part of the earth. You shall be witnesses unto me. Notice he said unto me. This is about me. You, you honor me when you do this. This is about me. You shall be witnesses unto me. That's your task. You're not twisting arms. Sometimes there's weeping. Sometimes there's such a burden that, that it comes out in your voice. But you're a witness. When you're a witness, you're personally attesting to something that you have experienced. That's what a witness does. You ever been a witness in a court? Most of you haven't. I was in the courthouse a few weeks ago voting with Paula. And I had a memory. up. I looked up on the second floor when I was called to jury duty. And of all things, it was a murder trial. Now, let me tell you something about uh, being on a jury in a murder trial. If you're a preacher, you get off the, off jury. <laughs> and, and the defense attorney basically said, I don't want a preacher on there, especially if he's a conservative preacher. And so I got X'd off pretty quick. But I remember when they brought, they brought the fellow in, I remember the crime. In fact, I remember where he did it. I think about it when I drive by that place. And uh, I looked up when he, and I, I remember when they walked him by. Later I saw him walking, and I thought about that when I didn't mention it to Paula, but I, those things kind of went through my mind. When you're in a courtroom and you're witnessing, you're not accusing anybody. You're just answering, you're giving an experience of something that you know. Well, are you a Christian? Do you know Jesus? You're witnessing about what you know, about the gospel, about transformation, about your relationship with Christ. And, and listen, your story is going to have some common denominators with everybody else's, but it's going to vary because you live in a different city, because you have a, you're a different person. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 19, this is encouraging, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. You see, Jesus, listen, are you listening? Jesus never called you to be a fisher of men. So, yeah, he did, right there. No, he called you to follow him. The call is to follow Christ. And when you follow Christ, he will, he will make you one, a reproducer to win others. You see, the focus, I'm going to talk to you in another message about this. The focus is to be on Jesus. The focus is not on the task. doesn't mean the task is unimportant, but when you focus on the task instead of Jesus, it affects your attitude both toward the person you're speaking and also on yourself when things may not go the way that you think they ought to go. Jesus said, follow me. Follow me. Get up in the morning. Follow him. And as you follow him, you begin to see things different. You have a flat tire and say, man, I'm late for this appointment. You're following him. If you have AAA, the guy that comes up, 
this happened to us or my pastor friends three years ago. And the guy that came in had a, had a horrible trial in his life. We had some bad things that happened to us. We had a, went down the mountain in the ice. God mercifully preserved us and had a terrible wreck in a van. We were going down that thing in a steep hill. Anyhow, they got that thing towed out. And we got to know this guy. We were just going about life. We were doing what we were supposed to do within the will of God. We were following Christ. He said, okay, here's someone I want you to encounter. But sometimes in our negativity and our desire for comfort and our schedule not to be bumped, we miss opportunities. Follow me when you go to the restaurant. The, the person that's waiting on you. Maybe the people across the way that you don't even know about. That they're watching you and your spouse have a conversation. And maybe just the joy and the contentment that you have. They may not even know that you're Christian, but, but there's a witness. There's a witness by your life that they say, I wish I had a marriage like that. You follow Jesus and he will make you become. What we do is we equate that with either knocking on a door or we quote closing the deal. And you can do that. I'm not saying that's not a part of it. But there's so much more to that. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So here's my task. It's to share the gospel. It's to be a witness. It's God's job to bring conviction. I am not responsible for the result but to plant the seed. That takes a lot off my shoulders. See? The farmer goes out and he he begins to spread the seed or, or plant the seed depending upon the crop. The condition of the soil determines on on whether the seed comes up. You read Matthew chapter 13 where the Bible talks about the parable of the soils. Now the seed is the word of God, Luke 8 says. The seed is perfect. You've got the sower, the seed, and the soil. The sower is us. The seed is the word of God. The, The soil is human hearts. People are different. They have different hearts. And I I don't know everybody's heart. And people have different responses. Because of that, the Bible says in Acts 1.8, And ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me. God will give you power. He will give you courage. Are you listening? He will give you strength. He will enable you. You don't have to know all the answers. At some point, learn how to swim, you got to get in the water. If you wait until you're perfect, you'll never get in. And Holy Spirit power is just, here's what it is. It's the Holy Spirit giving you influence. It's something He does. And when you have, when you have the influence of the Holy Spirit upon you, in my experience, you don't even know it. Sometimes you walk away. Listen, sometimes I preached a sermon and felt like I had failed because I, I had no awareness. Now, I'll be honest, sometimes I, I sense that, okay, God is using this. But there are times when I have no awareness. And there's going to be times when you witness to people when you, you have no idea that God's using it. And to put it as simply as I can, here's the way it works. That when you speak to a person 
As you speak words on the outside, you speak God's words, you're giving your testimony. God is speaking to them on the inside, and you can't see what's on the inside of their heart. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That means that I have sinned and I've done wrong. And that means that you've sinned and you've done wrong. That's what you're telling them. And on the inside, the Holy Spirit is saying, yes, you have sinned. And you're in a mess right now. You're cheating on your wife. Or you're doing this or whatever the issue. And the Holy Spirit of God is bearing down on them. And you're just, you're just giving the truth. But the soil, listen, the soil, the heart, you can't determine that. It's your job just to disperse the seed. So there's different stages that people have. The one thing that we all have in common before we're saved is we're, we're spiritually dead. And we need life. Okay? That's why I remember, you know, used to I'd drive by a soccer field or something early in the morning. And people would be out there playing soccer. And I'd say, man, they're just not going to church. Well, they're lost. Lost people don't go to church. Lost people are not our enemies or victims. They're victims to their own rebellion. They're lost. You don't go into a funeral home and look at a dead person and say, you're so selfish. You didn't. You don't do anything. Well, they're dead. But they're physically alive, but they're spiritually dead. And they need life. But the condition of their heart... Is unique. And so, um, Race, can I borrow you? Would you come up here for a minute? I want to show you how this will work. Just come up here. I won't embarrass you. Let's, let's start over here. This is kind of the journey, okay? I want you to get way over here with me. I had to write this down because I got a lot of notes. This is a continuum. We're going to use race as a a young teenager or a middle-aged man or maybe a a senior adult like your dad, something like that, (laughs) in in between there, okay? In honor of you, my friend, today. So from spiritual death to, I love you, to, to multiplication where you are born again and you're making disciples. Okay, here here's this man. And you want to win him to Jesus, or he's in your class at school, or you work with him. And he is just unaware of his spiritual need. He's spiritually dead, okay? He loves football. Uh, he likes ribs, um, pork ribs, pork, the other white meat. He, uh, I better stop. And he's just a regular guy. But he's unaware of his spiritual needs. He's unaware of who God is, that God is holy, that God is righteous. He needs to learn some things. If you just come to him on the front end and say, listen, I need to tell you that you're a sinner, that you're lost. He's, it's not going to register with him. So you know what he's going to need? He's going to need some time. Doesn't mean you, you, don't need to talk, you don't need to talk to him, but he, his heart is, is not really prepared for some things right now. Okay, now let's say you befriend him at work. Let's say you work with this guy. 
and he watches your life. He's, he knows you go to church. He's, well, why do you go to church? Well, I love the Lord, you know. Well, I saw your family. You know, we went out that company thing. You got a nice family. All of a sudden, he begins to think, my family's not like that. And he takes another step where he's aware that there is a God and that God makes a difference in people's lives. He doesn't, who, he doesn't know who God is, but there's, there's a difference in quality. And that makes a huge difference in the way that you live. Then he goes into the place where that he is in a closer contact with a believer's life. So let's say he, he has known you, or maybe he doesn't know you, he's been watching you. But either way, he's either known you in an acquaintance type way, and he's got to know you better. But now he begins to maybe ask you more questions. And now he's getting closer over here to the gospel, to being saved. And he's interested. And he begins to ask questions. I want to ask a question. Have you ever taken the journey like this with somebody? I have. This is the funnest thing in the world. This is the funnest thing in the world. But I'm going to tell you this. It takes a lot of time. And can I say this? Now, you can win 100 people to the Lord in mass, but you're not going to win 100 people to the Lord like this. Okay? Because this takes time. You can win more than one, but this takes time. So he's interested. He begins to ask some questions about, well, I saw this TV show in heaven. And do you believe in a real heaven? Is there a real hell? Was there a real devil? He begins to inquire about some things. Then in his private time, he begins to investigate. He's not even telling you. He begins to watch YouTube videos. Some of them are heresy, maybe. He even gets a Bible. You don't know all this, but all this stuff's going on. In his mind. And you begin to have lunch with him maybe. And he says look. I've been uh, reading the Bible. You say you have. And. Uh, what, what do you. And, and listen to this. You don't just jump into the gospel. You, you might can. If he's ready. But you say well tell me what you've been learning. And he shares some things. And he said well won't you read John. It tells you who Jesus is. And we'll get together next next Tuesday for lunch. We'll talk about it. He begins to grasp some things about who the Lord Jesus is. You see, he started over here. And how much time did this take? I don't know. And you can work on more than one person at a time. This, this is marvelous. Then he begins to understand the implications of following Jesus. Okay, if I do this, if I trust Jesus Christ as my Savior, this is going to change my life. This is not just... Like joining the club. Then he, this is salvation right here. It's a bad analogy. Then he accepts Christ as his Savior. He repents of his sin and puts his faith in Jesus as Savior. And that's his salvation journey. That can happen in a week. It may take seven years. But you, you work with people. You have to love people. Now that he's saved, uh, you... Bring him to the place. You begin to watch his life. His life begins to change. And you say, hey, would you like for me to help him? You teach him some basic things about being a Christian. About how to pray. What happens when he sins. How the devil's going to get on his shoulder and say, you're not a Christian now. And you just tell him, say, you know, that happened to me. He said, it did. He said, man, I, first three days I didn't sin in the forte. I thought, man, God's angry with me. He said, no. And you sit down and teach them how to pray. Teach them the importance of the church and baptism.
And then you, he begins to practice spiritual disciplines. You teach him how to read his Bible every day. Teach him how to listen to a sermon, how to take notes. And the guy begins to grow, and, and, and there's some other things here. And then he, he continues on. I don't have time to develop the whole thing. He begins to share the gospel with others. And then he begins to come back down here with me, okay? And then he, he begins to make some friends, and he does the same thing with them. And then his friend, he, he does it again, and then the friend that he went, they did the same thing with other people. Thank you, Race. I appreciate that. And you say, really, preacher? Yeah. That, that's, what, that's what discipleship is about. Classes are good, but that's why classes are overstated. It's more of a more of a, a one-on-one type thing, men with men, ladies with ladies. Now, let me give you one big idea, and it won't take long. Just one thing: apply the methods. This this is a, the simplest method that I can give you, but really the most important, in my opinion. And here it is: start where you are. If you want to multiply spiritually, you want to win people to Christ and disciple them, just start where you are. You say, well, if, if Tim and Daniel and Rick, if they would give me a name, no. No, your best prospects are people that you know, your family, your friends, the people you've met at the ball field. Start where you are. Okay. Now, uh, keep your finger in Acts chapter 1. We're going to come back there. Now turn to Luke 24. I want to show you this. Luke chapter 24. Notice in verse 47. Luke 24 and verse 47. This is again the great commission that Jesus gave. Some of his last words, Luke 24, 47. Look at this. And this gives us the message and the method here. Luke twenty four forty seven, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name, the name of Jesus, among all nations. So we're to evangelize to the entire world. But notice this last three words here: beginning at Jerusalem. Isn't that interesting? Now, why did Jesus say that? Because He loved Jerusalem more than any, anywhere else? No. You know why He said Jerusalem? Because that's where they were. Now, there's an old saying, we haven't said it here very much, but it's a good saying. The light that shines the brightest shines the brightest at home. If I had a, if we turned the lights out in this room and it was night, the dead of night, and I had the, the light on my camera and I got in the middle of the room and everybody was in a circle around me and I turned the flashlight on my camera, it will be brightest the closest to me. The further away it would not be, it would be, you could see light, but it would be the brightest closest to me. The light that shines brightest shines brightest at home or the nearest to you. And you need to start where you are, beginning at your Jerusalem, at your school, at your workplace, in your neighborhood, at your son's team. Wherever you are, that's where you start. This is so simple. And you, you do what I just taught you. And you would, you would do it according to your personality. 
That's the beauty of this. The message never changes. And there are more than one method. But, but you, cannot, you cannot violate this principle or you won't do it. Now, you, you see this in Luke 24. Look at Acts chapter 1, please. Acts chapter 1 and look at verse 8. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. You already looked at it, but I'm going to show you something else there. Acts 1, 8. But ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me. And look at this. Both in Jerusalem and in all Judea. That was the surrounding area. And in Samaria. That's cross-cultural missions. And unto the uttermost part of the earth. But he starts in Jerusalem. Now, the two words both in means there's a simultaneous effect. But it starts where you are. You're not to skip your Jerusalem. I want to ask you a question. Don't raise your hand. I wonder how many of you give to missions, but you don't witness. Or are you paying someone to do your evangelism? You see, that's not your Jerusalem. Now, we're to support missionaries, and I do, but that's not your Jerusalem. And your Jerusalem is not their Jerusalem. You see, I I will never reach your neighbors. That's not to say I couldn't, but I'm probably not. 99.999% I'm not. They watch you go to church. You talk to them over your fence or whatever, hopefully. I'm not going to reach the people that you sit with in the stands at the game. You are. You're classmates. Especially if you're a preacher. They, they kind of emotionally stiff-arm you. Who is in your Jerusalem? This was Jesus' method. Jesus approached individuals. Jesus, the people that Jesus won were not in crowds. They were individuals. And it's interesting, he usually approached them with a felt need and then got to the root need. Sometimes people criticize preachers for dealing with felt needs. Well, Jesus approached with a felt need, with the emptiness in their heart. But then he went down. The lady said, I need some water. He said, I, I, will, give you, I will give you water. I won't just give you water. I will give you a well in your soul. And he went directly to to the real need of their life. The secret weapon of reaching people for Jesus is intercessory prayer. Praying for people. For for years, for years, I have taught you to have a, a top ten, and it can be top five, but to have a list of people that you're praying for, for lost people. I looked at mine just the other day of people that I'm praying for. And I'm asking God to to tender their heart. I'm asking God to give me opportunities to speak to them. I'm asking God to bring other Christians across their way so that they could speak with them. I'm asking God to help them to see the lives of genuine Christians depending upon the person that maybe they're, they're cynical about. That maybe they could see some authenticity in people. I'm just pleading with God to to save them, to to help bring them a step closer. 
Maybe they're here. God, would you bring them over here? Help, help, help the soil to become more tender. And if you would, let me be a part of that. If not, but Lord, please help me. Paul was so burdened for his people that he had to call upon the Holy Spirit to attend upon his sincerity. In Romans chapter 9 and verse 1, he said, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness. The Holy Ghost, that I have, listen, I have great heaviness, continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish myself that I were cursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according in the flesh. He said, I could wish that I were cursed. That means to go to hell. I would go to hell for my brethren. That means my fellow Israelites. And the reason he called upon his conscience and the Holy Spirit to attest to his sincerity. Because when you read that, you say, now who would do that? He said, I'm not lying. I'm telling the truth. He had such a burden for people. Are you, are you burdened for your Jerusalem? Are you starting where you are? By the way, start where you are. And when you start where you are, start where they are. That's a good principle. Start where you are and then start where they are. Have discernment. What did Paul do with this burden? It's given in the next chapter, in Romans chapter 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. That's my, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. You could take Israel out for and fill in the blank. My heart's desire and my prayer to God for my brother is that he might be saved. I got a note from my brother last night. He said, are, are you watching the game tonight? And I said, said I, I'm watching, yes. So I'm doing some work. And while he says, can I come down? I said, yeah, come on down. His daughter's gone. He's by himself. I was by myself. We had a good time. He left. We told each other we loved each other. I thought, man, what a, what a blessing that God has given me such a good brother. You have a family member that's lost. Is your son or daughter lost? Your mom or dad? I mean, do you pray for them? Where, where are they on this continuum? And can you just go to sleep at night? And your heart not be disturbed about the fact that there is a hell. Is there your best friend that plays baseball, that plays softball, that plays basketball with you? Is your heart not disturbed that they're lost? My heart's desire and prayer to God for, fill in the blank, is that they might be saved. Do you have a, a prayer for them? What can you do to get the gospel to them? Are you praying for them? Are you helping to move them further, closer to become a Christ follower? When was the last time? Honestly, honestly, when was the last time you shared the gospel with someone? You see, knowing what to do, listen, knowing what to do is not the same thing as doing it. I hope tonight or today you will not leave here and just be a hearer only.
Hearers only never reignite anything. They just stay in the same rut. They just add another outline or some notes in their in their mind or, or stick it in their in their Bible somewhere. Start with the person, the people that are closest to you, and pray for them. In the spring of nineteen seventy two, I was uh, in spring training at my junior high school. That's what we called it then, at Stone. And I was playing center. And so I would line people up and then had a guard, the tackles, the ends. They called it the Kansas City huddle. The Kansas City Chiefs would line up like that then. And the backs would line up behind us. And I was here. And then Ricky Daniel was here. Jimmy Oliver was right here. He played here. He was two down from me. And then right over here was a guy that I, I got to know. I didn't know him well. His name was David. He had really good hands. He could catch anything. He wasn't the fastest guy. He wasn't slow, but he wasn't, wasn't his speed. He could just catch anything. And I got to know him in spring training. I remember when he would come back after a good pass. I'd lean over because he was over there. I said, man, good catch. That was great. And we got to be really good friends. And he, he came into... Uh, my life, and we started doing things together, came to our house. We had so much fun together. I wish you could have known him. Everybody loved David. He was, he was just so much fun. I remember years later at Butler High School, one spring training, I, I, I had mononucleosis, which I came to find out that People that have this this disease that I have, it's it's one of the markers early on when you have that. Not everybody has that has it, but and so I, I couldn't practice for those ten days or whatever it was. And it was cold. It was a February day, and I had on a a trench coat, a big tan trench coat, and I had on a hat. David was out at spring training at Butler on the practice field there, and uh, he came up and. He said, hey, Rick, I got an idea. And he pointed at a guy that was really struggling to practice. He said, you see so-and-so? I said, yeah. He said, I'm going to go tell him that you're a a recruiter from Alabama. And and he was scared to death, this guy was. He said, you tell and I'm going to tell him that you want to see him go in. You're interested in him, and you want to see him go in. And so when I do, he's going to look at you, and you nod, okay? He said, well, what did you do, preacher? I said, I said, okay, I'll do that. And so David went over there, and, and so I thought, well, I need to look official. So I put my hands in my pockets like that, and I kind of looked down. And Dave went over there, and he tapped that guy, and he pointed over there at me, and, and he looked up like that, and I nodded at him. And he said, did he go in? No, he, he didn't go in. And what happened? He didn't get a scholarship. What happened? He, he missed it, missed his opportunity. And... Man, he was fun. He was late for everything. One night I said, hey, won't you come over and uh, spend the night, Dave? He's okay, I'll be there. And he walked from his house all the way to our house, about a two-mile walk. I didn't think he was coming, no cell phones back then. About 11 o'clock at night, the lights are out in the house, and back door, Daddy goes to the door, and there he is. Rick, David's here. And he just walks in, hey, Cotton, 
Rick told me to come on over and spend the night. So we got up, and that was just him, just, just, a, just a, a great soul. About a year after I met him, I invited him to our church. And we were about two-thirds. I could show you the road where this happened. And I was looking for him. Remember, he was late for everything. And we were standing up singing, and then I saw the back door. He came in, and then we're standing up, and he, 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 he's about six one. He got down, and he's walking on the pew so the preacher wouldn't see him, kind of squatted down. And he wasn't trying to be rude. He's never been to church. And he gets down, and, of course, you know, you don't fuss at him. He didn't know any better. He got down there. And he started going to church. And then he went to uh, some youth retreats and things. I remember he didn't have money. My dad paid his way. I remember that. I remember after about three months, after about three months, we were in a service and I put my arm around him. I said, David, wouldn't you like to be saved? He said, I would, Rick. And we went down. I could show you. I could show you where this happened. And we knelt in the altar. And two ninth graders, I won my buddy, my best friend of Christ. My son, Jeremiah, his name is Jeremiah David, named after my brother, whose name is David, and after my friend David. That was in 1973. Actually, 1972. 1979, seven years later, about five feet from where we were kneeling, David's body would rest in a coffin after a horrible, a horrible car accident where a drunk hit him. Every... Uh, Every March, you can put that up there if you would. Every March, I go to Maple Hill Cemetery and I go to his grave on the day of his death. His birthday was March the 15th. And he died on March the 16th, 1979 couple of months before we were to be married. He was to be at my wedding. He's in heaven. I, I do that for me more than him. He's my best buddy. Put that, put that other one up there, if you would, my friend. There's a scripture verse. You can't see it at the bottom that he signed in my Bible. I took it to his mom. And I said, I'm going to show you what David, scripture verse, he signed in my Bible. And when I went to the cemetery and I saw his headstone, I didn't know she had put that verse at the bottom of his, of his headstone. All around his grave, I'm not edifying myself. Please, please understand my heart. Please understand my heart when I say this. But all around his grave, there are, I think, seven people that I helped influence for eternity. that I did their funerals. 
One, <coughs> forgive me, one of them, David's brother, his son sent me a text just last week. He said, I was cleaning out dad's stuff and look what I found. And he sent me some stuff that I had sent. And I said, hey, let's get together. He said, we will. I'll give you this when we get together. Listen, friends, this is real. This is real. This is real. You see, you say, well, I'm going to do this one day. Who's in your Jerusalem? Start where you are and then start where they are. And pray for them. Would you bow your heads with me, would you?